Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with an old friend, Peter Neal. He's the founder and director of the Willet Ocean Observatory. It's a fantastic resource. People who follow this podcast know of my nautical background and curiosity. I first met Peter through the South Street Seaport Museum that he directed in New York City. But uh, today's uh, session is just about work that I think is, is so important to the future of this planet and to the lives of our children. Peter, thank you for joining me. Uh, it's my great pleasure, uh, Rob. Good to see you again. It's been a while. And, uh, great to see you. How, uh, I guess where I'd like to start is, is understanding how this World Ocean Observatory came to be. What what did you see? What inspired you? And what what have you built? Well, I was I've been in the maritime preservation business for for some time. It was sort of a second career. My first career was as a novelist. I published a bunch of novels in the seventies. Um, but one day I was in Cambridge. Uh, it was sleety and rainy, and I ducked into a used bookstore to uh, get out of the weather went to the dollar bin, and I found a book called The Ocean, Our Future, which was a report uh, by an independent commission on the future of the oceans, the world oceans. It had been, it had been uh, gathered together, uh, experts from around the world by Mario Suarez, who was the former president of Portugal. Uh, and I sat down and read through it, and it was as if my whole life changed, uh, because it's the most prescient report still. Um, and its final uh, recommendation was that there be a online uh, place of exchange for information and educational services about the ocean. Key, key point defined as an integrated global social system. So it transcends the f- conventional focus on species and habitat to connect the ocean to climate, freshwater, food, energy, health, trade, transportation, science, technology, policy, governance, um, international finance, uh, and cultural traditions, uh, community development. Almost, well, everything in our lives are connected by the ocean, and it has been exaggerated even still or amplified by globalization. Um, The first person who stepped off a, a beach onto a small boat and pushed out into the unknown ocean, that was the beginning of globalization through exploration and, and knowledge and all the rest. So I, I did some due diligence about this idea. I went to see some people at the UN um, and uh, asked permission. Uh, they, they said, uh, well, we don't know who's gonna do it. If you'd like to try, why not? Uh, and that was about 16, 17 years ago. Uh, and so after I left South Street, I took that with me uh, here in Downey's Maine and have built a platform that uh, advocates through communication and con- connection 
toward building a community of citizens of the ocean worldwide, which uh, is an informed body uh, sort of created from the bottom up as a exercise in uh, understanding preservation and political will. Uh, one of the great problems we have in all these transformational ideas is political will. And so uh, if, we, if we're expecting that necessarily to come from the top down, we already know that uh, that's a, a, a limited opportunity. Uh, the way it does happen, though, is, is from the bottom up. And if, that's, and if that's going to happen successfully, it needs an educated public. Um, so we have these communication platforms. We have uh, 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 audio features, podcasts, aggregated video channel. Um, we have uh, online exhibits, profiles, educational curriculum. Uh, we have uh, 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 a digital magazine. We're developing a virtual aquarium. I'll talk about that maybe later. Uh, and all of these things, uh, which are vehicles by which we can focus on solutions and information responsible science information and solutions, the idea being to, to, to become a force in ocean literacy. Uh, we are uh, irresponsibly negligent in our understanding of the ocean, and science um, uh, is hard at work. Uh, data, we are learning enormous amounts every day, more and more and more. There's an old adage that we know more about the surface of, 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 of Mars than we know about the, about the ocean that represents 70% of our, of our planet. Uh, nonetheless, um, that's not the entire answer. As in all cases, data is enormously useful. There's never enough. Scientists always want more. Uh, and the idea now, though, is if we're, we, we need to turn that data into action. And uh, one of the ways we do that is, uh, is to aggregate the work, the good work of others, celebrate the work of others, bring it all together into one place uh, where people can go and uh, interact. And, you know, the website now is you know, almost 3 million people a year. Um, and all of these other things, uh, Facebook follow following is 950,000. These are all sort of numbers that matter if you're actually going to try to reach people outside of the conventional circles uh, and silos. Um, as in all cases, we, we limit ourselves, we talk to ourselves, we have conferences uh, where we all come together and say a report that we've, of the incremental advance that we've made since the last conference. Um, these frustrate, frustrate me terribly. Uh, but, uh, so the World Ocean Observatory can now claim, I think responsibly, legitimately, that we're reaching millions of people worldwide with this message, uh, 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 for ocean preservation and sustainability. I think it's fascinating, just many of the different aspects and dilemmas that you brought up. As you know, in the, what you might call post-Trump era, the notion of uh, expertise, hierarchy, and representation is in tatters. I don't mean the, they are wrong. I mean the, the uh, confidence in those things has been beaten up. So at some level, 
you have something that is bottom-up organic, which you might call for the people on the outside. But, uh, and, and I heard you say in that, that you weren't in a place where you felt like you could essentially just go to the insider committee meetings that would be taken care of. Uh, I guess there are two questions that come to mind. Uh, one is, sometimes there's something which economists call the public good. And in a market-based system and whatever, it, it's not that we don't care, but nobody's responsible, so it falls between the cracks. The public good is not taken care of. Other times, there's what you might call vested interests with fierce opposition to the repairs that are necessary for the public good because it creates private loss. You see a lot of this now with fossil fuel companies or nations that have huge endowments of fossil fuels, like Russia, seemingly resisting the notion of climate change or the repair of our energy production systems. What do you see when it comes to the sea? Are there organized interests trying to thwart the work that you think needs to be done, number one, or is it just neglect and falling between the cracks or a little of both? Well, it's a little of both, neglect or indifference or, or just a, a kind of an assumption that, that it's out there. You go to the beach, it seems infinite. Uh, you don't really see the, the tumult, the, the systems that are the, that are inherent in the in the in the in in, in that 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 nature, um, you take it for granted. Um, you you walk down the uh, a, a Walmart corridor and ask somebody where all this stuff come from, they have no idea that it's come from someplace else across the sea. They don't understand the interconnection of 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 shipping, or for example. Uh, uh, the exchange of data or financial transactions that take place by undersea cables. People just don't understand that this ocean atmosphere, this ocean environment, is is essential to almost everything that happens to our our world now. Uh, climate is one part of it. Uh, 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 the the effect of of emissions and CO two uh, uh, conditions, uh, the acidification of the ocean. All of these things are invisible, and and for the most part, people don't understand them. And scientist stands up and says, "Well, this and that, and percentages and parts per parts per whatever," and um, it, it's very hard for people to wrap their their minds around it until you can um, try to make it relevant to their to their lives specifically. Now, the vested interest thing, I mean, it's a fact of life. Yes, there's self interest. There's also a kind of underlying psychological fear of change. It's a it's a natural phenomenon. Nobody really wants to disrupt their lives in some way. Uh, nobody, uh, in the end, believes that that they will give up something essential uh, for someone else. There's a kind of innate human self-absorption and selfishness. Um, that's that's part of the issue. I I don't think I can ever solve that problem. Uh, the problem is 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 how can you make people understand that that fear is groundless and actually that the thing that they should be afraid of is the status quo, uh, because and it's perfect in fossil fuels. I mean, if the smart money didn't get out of fossil fuels ten years ago, they're not. It's not smart money, uh, and they've ridden fossil fuels down. In the name of dividend and 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 expect and 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 convention, 
Uh, and and it, that has been further subverted by fracking, which was, of course, a, 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 a terrible, uh, destructive extension of trying to get the last drop of oil out of the, uh, or gas out of the ground, uh, that had its own social ramifications. I mean, it disrupted farming. Uh, people's lands were, 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 were polluted. They, they had to move away. There's an enormous waste problem from fracking. Uh, waste, waste, fracking waste is being hidden, dumped into waterways, abandoned in places where people don't think they can see it. I mean, a horrible uh, 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 short-term attempt by the industry uh, rather than to go full into alternatives to include wind and solar, geothermal, and all the rest of it. So there's, 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 there's that, that part of it. The other part of it, though, is the, the idea of understanding the commons. Uh, we've gone through a, you know, quite a long period of time where the idea of, of shared resources um, has been subverted by uh, individual gain, gr uh, 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 unlimited growth, um, essentially uh, based on consumption, enabled by fossil fuels. That was the paradigm of the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, it's, I think it's a dying paradigm, but the fact is it was there. It informed many, many people's lives. It's true that many people's lives were improved by that until the point where the positive consequences were overcome by the negative impacts. And so it began then to, to dilute uh, and to, for people to understand that, that there is this thing called the nature's trust doctrine, for example, which says that the, the natural resources of a, of a nation belong to its people, actually. Uh, this is in, I think, uh, 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 Roman law, English common law. I think it's actually mentioned in the common constitution that these are these are that natural resources are an inalienable right of the people who live in the country, and it is up to government to to uh, uh, it can license that, it can develop that, but it can only do it in the context of sustainability, so that the supply is never exhausted for the ensuing generations. And of course, we have done exactly the opposite. We have gotten past peak oil to the point where now we're uh, exhausting uh, it to almost nothing. We're desperately trying to eke out just a little bit more. Um, uh, and we're doing the same thing with water, with fresh water. Uh, we're draining the aquifers. We're polluting the water. Uh, we're doing all this kind of, of, of predictable historical behavior using structures that are like dinosaurs. They really are outmoded, outdated, um, and they're sinking into the mud. Uh, and we, we maybe some future generation will discover them and burn them. <laughs> but, but the fact is, uh, it's a paradigm that, that is, is bankrupt. Uh, and so we have, uh, there is a kind of returning to, to the idea of the commons, particularly in terms of shared natural resources. And the biggest single system out there left unpolluted, uncorrupted, is the ocean. So I 
advocate personally and and uh, through uh, my, my one of my books, the the Once and Future Ocean, uh, subtitled Notes Toward a New Hydraulic Society, which is basically uh, a, a, an outcome of a new paradigm which says uh, manage growth because we're going to have to grow to meet the needs of a, of a growing population, but based on 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 sustainability. Uh, and enabled by the freshwater ocean continuum, which is the, the the last place we can go to get the kind of energy, food, freshwater, um, uh, medicines, uh, and and spiritual spiritual solace uh, that have been taken away from us by bankrupt activity on land. Uh, so the idea that uh, one would transfer, transform or transition into this new paradigm uh, based on this hydraulic concept um, uh, is, is imperative. Uh, frankly, I don't see any alternative because if we don't have water, we can live without chocolate and diamonds and Bitcoin and, 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 and gold. We can live without all of that, the caviar. We don't need any of those things but the one thing we all need, everyone, everywhere, all the time, is access to water. Uh, a couple of days, we die as individuals, as families, as communities, as nation states. And we're seeing it already. Uh, we are seeing water wars. We're seeing city, major cities uh, that can no longer provide fresh water to the population. Uh, we've seen, uh, and this has all been exacerbated by climate. Uh, it's not going to get any better. Um, and so weather pattern changes, drought, extreme weather, rain, flood, erosion, um, and then add on top of that a kind of history of corruption uh, and, and uh, political and, and, and financial gain uh, that has been accumulated by a few. Uh, and you have essentially a mandatory set of circumstances which you are going to have to uh, respond and adapt immediately uh, to survive. Uh, there's no time. Uh, we have lost the, uh, I'm amazed by the lack of urgency. Uh, there is no time in, in, in terms of, even as we set goals for, uh, you know, being fossil fuel free by 2050, 2050, 2030, uh, that's not enough. It, 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 that's too much time. It's too much time. Uh, it's, a, it's a function of, of reluctant transition. Um, and, and then what we do is we're cleaving to short-term uh, solutions. For example, the electric car. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I despair, and maybe you can help me on this because it, to me it's a supply and demand situation. It's a fundamental economic formula that is not being talked about, which is, which is in order to meet the, the, the anticipated demand for electric cars and all the other uh, tools that we, will, or we propose to run off batteries, we need the rare metals to essentially build the batteries, to store the power, to store the energy. And there is 
nowhere enough of those metals available now or in the future on the land to meet the demand. And no one seems to be talking about this. And the only place that you can go where you can expand the geological opportunity is the, is the, is the ocean floor. And mining in the deep sea is already under, underway. People are trying to do it. Uh, people are fighting it. And the reason for it is that these rare metals are all located in the areas of uh, like hydrothermal vents and where, the, where intense biodiversity remains, which would be destroyed by this process. So all this is, is essentially taking a new technology based on extraction, wrapping it in a new kind of concept, and uh, it and and seeing it as a penultimate solution, which I do. I personally believe it is not. Um, and so we were going. We are already seeing theft of old old in, uh, devices and catalytic converters in cars, so people can get the little bits of lithium and whatever it is that they can need because there's a market demand for them. That's pathetic. Uh, and so, in order to get these 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 things, we're going to have to mine. Mining is extraction. Extraction is destructive. Uh, we've been through it all before. So why are we wasting the time on this and not looking and inventing our way out of this? Not just sliding ourselves in, using the old tools, wrapping the old behaviors in new in new clothes. Uh, and inventing our way and starting to look at serious alternatives that are out there that young young scientists and others are uh, in are, are are working on with with some success, uh, and that's where the investment should be going. Those places are are the ones where the smart money ought to be now. In order to pull this off, right, you know. Let's just you, mean, just. you mean in order to sustain life on Earth? Something <laughs> <laughs> as simple, simple as that. Yeah. Let's, let's 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 take a look um, at the idea, the nature, the definition of capital, because that's what it all revolves around. It's it's capital, and we never we've always separated capital, capitalism, uh, uh, sort of independently uh, of understanding the true value of natural capital. And natural capital, which which are is rep the, the, the 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 gathering together of all the value of all these resources um, on Earth, um, has been uh, has been utilized, uh, but we haven't we haven't we haven't accounted for it correctly. We have, and and so I, I'd like to talk a little bit about that because. I'm not an economist. I just look at this stuff from a kind of logical, sort of uninformed point of view. But I do. You mean, feel, you mean, you mean you're not intoxicated by the mythologies of economics? Is that what you're saying? No, I mean, <laughs> I'm teasing you. Come on. You. Well, that's your job. That's your that's job. Right. That's you, right. You drunk the Kool Aid. Detox. Detox. That's right. <laughs> but. So if you're going to pull off this hydraulic society and all the rest of it, that's fine. But what you really need to understand, and, and there's a phrase that get, describes this, which is ecosystem service analysis, where you actually have to understand uh, 
um, the, the, the examine and monetize all aspects of, 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 of production, manufacture, but which includes the, the, the costs of water, waste, uh, reparation, health effects, all of those numbers are left out of the evaluation today. We never do that. When you walk down a corridor in a supermarket, and you don't hear the wasting water. You don't hear the water that was used in the packaging, the harvesting, the delivery. None of that is there. And 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 I've I've advocated for a labeling, water labeling. Uh, everything on earth is labeled on the package, except the fact that the most important thing that was used in its manufacture is not is left out. We know about MSG or vitamin C, but we don't know about water. Everything we produce has a water cost and it should be labeled. We should know it. Does it take a million gallons of water to build a Volkswagen? Yes, it does. Uh, and much of that water, by the way, is not priced and is sometimes free. So the, the, the manufacturer um, has, 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 has essentially used the primary resource at no cost and added all these other things with all their detrimental impact um, uh, on, on, on top. And we don't understand the true cost of, of all doing, of doing that. So I would advocate, first, ecosystem service analysis. You have to understand the problem across the full spectrum of its, of its, of its true cost. And then you have to account for it. And so why isn't there ecosystem accounting um, and audits? The, the fact is that when, you, when, when, when these companies audit their books or when they, uh, you know, calculate the, their balance sheets, um, there's this huge piece of, 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 of financial information that's not included. And if it was included at the true value, their profit would be loss. And that then would say to the investor, this is not a good strategy. We're investing in the wrong thing by not truthfully accounting for what is the, 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 the cost of doing business. And, and, and we're going to, water is now an asset class. Um, you know, there are water funds, there are water companies, there are, there are hedge funds looking for water. Oh my God, you know, I mean, we, we just have to not let that happen again or that people either um, misrepresent the true cost of things or they know and they suck out the value in the short term uh, and what they don't understand is that that value is irreplaceable. You 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 may get a a, a a fancier car, but you'll never get the true value of that water loss uh, uh, back again. Um, I'm uh, I'm kind of grinning as I think about the history of economic thought here because uh, there was once a gentleman called the Earl of Lauderdale, and when Adam Smith wrote the Wealth of Nations, the foundation stone of modern economic thinking. The Earl of Lauderdale said, 
you said that value is equal to price. Well, why don't you turn off the water and the oxygen and see how valuable those things are, a price of zero. I mean, they were talking about what now economists call exchange value rather than use value. But at the time, because the scale of population or technological methods that were employed was very small in relation to the atmosphere and the water, it didn't appear that they were scarce. But that is now changing. And there was a whole lot of fighting on, on the side of Adam Smith, but the Earl of Lauderdale stands pretty tall. And uh, I know William, uh, or excuse me, uh, John Bellamy Foster and uh, Robert McChesney and others have written a number of articles on this, which I'd like to share with your website, because it's, it's about the wake-up call. And the other thing I would say, there's a person that the audience of this podcast hears about relatively frequently. It's one of the philosophers, was a student of Wittgenstein at Cambridge University named Stephen Tolman. Uh, his daughter, Camilla, works with INET on projects related to environment in Africa. But Stephen wrote a book called Cosmopolis in the late 80s. And it was a study of the implications going back to the 30 years war of the abstract nature of what we will call the Cartesian Enlightenment. And he talked about there were benefits related to astronomy, there were benefits related to some aspects of natural science. But when it was adapted to social science, where, if you will, the subject and object were intertwined, you got to this confusion and it created fault lines. And he traces this, he wrote this book, uh, I think during the second term of the Reagan administration. But he essentially said, you could feel at many junctures between the world wars, during the depression, etc., during the 1960s, that society could recognize that things were out of balance. And when the turmoil started, such as we've experienced in the last year, People often become frightened, as you said earlier on in this conversation, and they lurch back to the familiar or the nostalgic rather than pushing forward with the new design. They have to overcome the psychological resistance that's implanted in them by fear. And this is when true leadership is called for. And this is when the stakes are high when society resists its own well-being unconsciously. And I think, I think that's a large part of where we are right now, where everybody can sense that the wheels have come off on social sustainability, environmental sustainability, concentration of wealth, uh, aspects of governance, which look more like they're bought and sold than representative of people. The representative of dollars or the equivalent currency in other countries. So the question is, in some way, how do we rise above this? I, I'm curious, oceanographic institutes, I went to MIT. When I was young, I thought about doing graduate work at Woods Hole or Scripps or any of these places. Are they at the vanguard along with you of this kind of work? Or are they um, somewhat, how would I say, 
caught in the habit structures of previous generations or challenges. Well, I, 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 want, to, I want to give them more credit than that. Uh, Good. It, uh, that makes these, me happy. These places, these places are doing the best science. They are, the, 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 they are out there. Uh, Woods Hole is, 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 is still amazing. Uh, Scripps, still amazing. The, the, one of the problems is that they rely almost entirely on government grants. Um, you also have a, new, a different kind of phenomenon where you have um, something like the Schmidt uh, Ocean Institute, uh, Wendy and uh, Eric and Wendy Schmidt. Uh, and these are very wealthy people. Uh, they have essentially constructed a state-of-the-art oceanographic research vessel, and they are subsidizing uh, scholars to go out and do amazing work in the deep sea. Um, and uh, this is essentially a kind of, it's a not-for-profit, but it's a private charity in a way um, with this, this amazing intent. Uh, and so it, it obviates the, 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 the structure that, for example, in a government grant, if it goes through a university, anywhere from 20 to 50 or 60 percent is taken by the university as overhead. So there's this constant, uh, you know, a million dollar grant may only put $400,000 in the water uh, after all the other people have taken their, their, their share. So the, 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 the structures do get in the way. There's no question about it. And scientists will tell you that, that, that they do. In policy, it's, it's also interesting. We, we use words like adapt. Uh, sea level rise is a good, good, good example. Uh, uh, adapt, mitigate. You know, well, adapt just says, well, it is what it is. We're going to have to change our ways. That's one strategy. Mitigate, it basically is a hard response, an engineering response. We're going to do some kind of 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 thing like the Thames River barrier, or the 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 uh, uh, protecting barriers, uh, di uh, artificial dikes that are now protecting the coast of the Netherlands. Uh, these these Venice is thinking about the same thing in order to, to control flooding. These are engineering solutions. It's classic. This is how we think, um, and it's it's and very smart people are trying are are trying. To deal with that, uh, you could look at the same thing with the, the 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 plastic in the ocean. Millions of dollars raised to try to go out and engineer uh, a solution uh, to gather it all up in some way, which is really ineffective. Uh, hasn't really worked. Um, and what we don't do is one of two things: we don't go instead of just trying to fix the problem that we try to go back and fix the cause. Um, so the way to fix plastic in the ocean is to fix the plastic problem. Uh, a fossil fuel product, let's remember, it's a fossil fuel product. Uh, it can be recycled, uh, but plastic recycling, which had its moment, now has eroded. Uh, and because it was all based on the old behaviors, you either ship it to China, who won't take it anymore, or you, uh, you, you, you don't create scale that's large enough to make it e economically viable for industry to recycle that plastic, 
but if you recycled every bit of plastic on Earth today, you'd never have to make another piece of plastic again. So we're, it's that kind of, 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 of behavior that we're not doing. The other side of that is adapt, mitigate, invent, invent. That's what we do best. This is one of the great aspects or great qualities of, of the human imagination. We know how to invent things. Scientists are brilliant at inventing things. And we ought to be subsidizing them, for example, the way we subsidize fossil fuels. Only within the last 30 days, I believe, has there been an attempt by the U.S. government to stop subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. So we've taken our resources that belong to the people, we've subsidized them, we've given research and developed grants, we've given them tax exemptions, um, we've done all these things to enable the fossil fuel industry, right? Um, we've, we're, and we're exhausting the supply. But what, you've, what that represents is probably the largest transfer of wealth from the people to the few in human history. Think about it. Coal, oil, gas, all plastic, all of these things based are are based on a uh, have been have been incentivized up until this very moment long after the oil crisis long after the smart money left um, only because of these vested interests and you see these companies today even still in the name of sustainability and conservation environmental and ESG standards and all the rest look Look underneath and see what actually is happening. And, you know, there's a piece. To yeah, I'm doing a podcast with a gentleman uh, from Penn State named Michael Mann, whose book, his newest book is called The New Climate War. And it's about the information. It's, it's scrambling what you might call the signal to noise ratio to sow the seeds of doubt that we need to change or that there is any urgency in that need to change. Uh, Naomi Oreskes, who I've not met, wrote a wonderful book called The Merchants of Doubt, showing the analog between how the tobacco industry deflected attention away from the harm of cigarettes and how that's been adapted to the fossil fuel industry. Do you yourself experience uh, what you might call vibrant opposition in the world of ideas from the things that you put out? Well, it may be that my voice is so tiny uh, they haven't heard it yet. They haven't heard it yet, but we'll, uh, we'll work on that together. We'll work on that. But, <laughs> but my, 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 I think that the, the, the other thing to think about is so if you so in, if we're if we're in the in if we're in our inventive mode, and if we we do acknowledge uh, that the old way of accounting for things re, uh, is a is a way to show on a corporate or a individual investor balance sheet that they, it's a, it's, that we're all engaged in a kind of false economy. And if you then look at what uh, this new paradigm and you say, okay, if you're going to organize the world around the most valuable resource on earth, which is, which is the ocean freshwater continuum, 
then you have to start inventing ways to use that appropriately, not to corrupt it, not to pollute it, not to exhaust it. And if you do that, then other things start to happen that are sort of inevitable. Uh, there are kinds of these additional transformational outcomes. And so if you have a, if you take that as the premise, then suddenly the, the, the policies and the laws and the enforcement of those laws changes um, because you want to protect this new, this new uh, approach. You start uh, uh, addressing problematic forms of governance because you start thinking about upstream and downstream effect. Uh, I, we have independent municipalities along a river. There, the, the, somebody up here can put a, a chemical plant in and it will and throw their waste in the water. Nobody can stop them. However, it has terrible downstream impact on the community all the way down to the coastal, coastal resources where that river has become polluted. So in order to combat that under this new system, you move away from independent municipalities to regionalism and regional management, watershed management. Uh, and if you start doing that, you start making changes to the infrastructure based on the commonality of interest and the understanding that these things speak directly to meaningful work and public health and equity and social justice. All of these things that we talk about as problems we need to face in our society today actually could be um, addressed in a more creative way if we were to invent another way of 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 associate organizing ourselves into new structures based on new behaviors that is all essentially gathered together in a strategy the only strategy for the survival of civilization so if you want to sound, look at how we're going to do that and you look at the ocean you see that it is a climate regulator you see that it is a heat pump. It is a massive storage uh, of, of, of energy that can be released in many different ways. Um, it is a huge uh, source of biodiversity and food uh, to feed the, the, feed the world. Uh, it is where we will find the cures to cancer. And all diseases, even diseases we don't even know exist. Because in that biodiversity, though we are already essentially building cancer cures on either direct use or synthesis of ocean organisms, uh, organ processes, uh, uh, ocean processes. So if, if, you, if you really want to embrace a solution that could work, that would work, you need to say, and you understand, need to stand, understand it urgently, that nothing else matters. And that we should, that, that the United States really doesn't even have a national ocean policy. We say we do, and, and the Biden administration has put forth some interesting things, and they put some great people, great people into the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. But... Ocean policy extends beyond NOAA. It extends to land use, environmental protections, legal protections, health issues, 
you know, social justice, um, uh, problems of equity and access. Um, I'll give you a perfect example of that. Flint, Michigan. A, uh, a, close a, to my home. <laughs> a short I grew up in Detroit. Opportunistic political decision made by some politician basically destroys a community. And it is, yes. it is still not recovered. So suddenly the 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 the, That's right. the water That's is, right. is it comes back, it's sourced to pollution. There's immediate immediate uh, data that shows that children health is affected. The, uh, there's a hue and cry. Um, when they restore it to the the pure the 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 uh, the pure supply, the only reason they really did it was that because there was a GM factory um, there in Flint that suddenly was complaining about corrosion in the parts, that the water they were using in the manufacturer was corroding the parts almost immediately. And so then they had to restore it back to the, 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 the pure thing based on basically a political decision in response to a corporate interest, not to the fact that the children of Flint were ill or that the property values in that in that in that city, heavily minority populated, were destroyed. And they still haven't replaced the lead in the pipes. They still haven't addressed the problem with any any degree of compensation or reg or, or regress. I mean oh. restoration. It's You're winding me up, man. You're winding me up because I uh, as you know I grew up in Detroit and I was there involved in some consultations around the Detroit bankruptcy as the Flint water crisis became known and understood. When I was a kid, I used to sail on Lake Huron all the time. And if you hit, if you needed some water, you would take a ladle or a bucket and you'd fill it up over the side and you could cook with it or drink it or whatever. These people in Flint, what are they, four miles from Saginaw Bay or something? And Yet their water was polluted like that. When the bankruptcy is happening in Detroit, Detroit Water and Sewage, I believe, was the largest water public utility in the world at that time. It became a source of struggle because they thought they were going to solve the bankruptcy and pay off the creditors by selling that to a French company. And the French company wanted to do the acquisition. The guy who was the emergency manager worked with Jones Day, which had done a lot of business with that company in, in France. And yet everybody then realized that the way the money was going to be made was a windfall. When something is a public utility, you have certain laws protecting the workers. When it's acquired in the private sector, you can lay them off and cancel their pensions. So the windfall would go to the company, not to the city that was in distress. But Detroit water was obviously a very valuable commodity, and it went very deep into the controversy and negotiations there. And I remember very uh, vividly, because I held a conference in 2016, I had a young man who was an activist who had been uh, put on trial because he went to Highland Park, Michigan. There's this right in the intersection between the east-west and the north-south highways. It was a big water tower, and he got up and he painted graffiti on there free the water it said and uh, that poor that young man was harassed quite a lot for 
saying something that, how do I say, needed to be said. Uh, to, being around the Great Lakes, it, yeah, I was just going to say, being around the Great Lakes in a water crisis spun my head in terms of the relationship between values and value, like I, you can hardly imagine, but you, you can't imagine, I know. Well, the, the, the people need to understand that the ocean begins at the mountaintop uh, and it descends to the abyssal plain. So every drop of water that falls, that evaporates from the ocean and goes into the water cycle, the one scientific principle that almost everybody learns in grammar school, right? It evaporates it up, it goes up into the clouds, into the weather, it falls down as rain or snow, and then it comes right back down through the watersheds all the way to the ocean and recycles again. It's an absolutely glorious global system. And for example, you can look at the Himalayas and see, which is now called the third pole, which because of evaporation and snowfall and all the rest of it, that, that, that services what is it, seven Asian countries, millions and millions of people rely on that water that descends down through all the farmlands and the tea plant and all of that into the rivers and then out into the sea. And that refreshment, that essentially, that, that, that descent of water then to be recycled again and again and again is the essence of how we survive. We are water. You know, our bodies are water. Um, and so if we can't identify with this, uh, you, 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 you're basically denying the fundamental uh, element, physical element in your body, which in fact is that you're, 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 you're denying yourself, your soul, life for you and everyone else. And it needs to be urgent enough and un understood well enough for people to understand that. And one of the tools that the World Ocean Observatory is developing, with, by the way, the support of the Smith uh, Schmidt Ocean Institute, is a virtual aquarium, which will allow for anyone, any age, anywhere, at any time, at no cost, to go into a virtual space that looks just like an aquarium. And they will be able not only to explore the deep sea, but the coastal zone, but they will also be able to spawn the nature of, of work, ocean work, and also cultural and spiritual resources. So there will be galleries within this, or modules or, 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 or exhibits within this virtual aquarium that demonstrates the hydraulic organization and depth of meaning and, and complexity and beauty of this water world. Uh, and to me, that's the most revolutionary thing we can do because it, 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 there's no price barrier. I mean, I love aquariums. I love what happens in aquariums in one way because it inspires in visitors, particularly children, a sense of wonder and reverence or at least an awe in the face of nature. But if you follow a, a family of four after they've paid $120 for a two-day ticket, 
um, and watch them go through even the, 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 the placement of the labels and the language in them is not really conducive because the, the, the parent needs to read it to the kid. And the parent doesn't understand it any better than the kid does. And so that the information is, it's awkward. There's an educational program. That's great. There's a touch tank. That's great. It costs $400 million or more to build one. It costs $40 million a year to run one. And all good. I want all of that to do. I want to drive using the virtual aquarium. I want young people and old people alike to essentially then go to those aquariums and learn more and learn about their region and about their and, and that's true all, you know, worldwide. There are like hundreds of aquariums in China. Well, my father was a, uh, my father was an all-American swimmer at University of Michigan. His zodiac sign is Aquarius. He was a championship racing sailor and he spent four years in the Navy in the Pacific. And when my mother passed away, I bought a home overlooking Bolinas Reef or it's called Duxbury Reef, a gentleman who you probably know, uh, uh, Charles Reich, who wrote The Greening of America. Uh, he wrote a book called The Sorcerer of Bolinas Reef, how he had an epiphany there. But to sit at that house with my father and watch the weather change, to watch, how would I say, seals fighting with sharks, to watch breaching whales, all of these things, month after month after month, is, is very nourishing. And it, it's, as you said with the Native Americans, it, it's very nourishing. And, and I will say for Bolinas, they have marine reserve beaches, Agate Beach, Bolinas Beach, and so forth, that are public access. And people just experience such an uplift. Well, California it's, has made public access a major part of governance. I mean, the, 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 the coastal access uh, regulations and stuff. You've got Drive Highway 1, uh, down the West Coast and, and 101, and, and you, all you see is thousands of people on the beach uh, enjoying access that has not been taken away from them. Native peoples need access to the water. They, the, you know, we've taken that away from them too. Um, uh, and that resurgence of indigenous wisdom uh, is important for us to understand. It's You can't just belittle it and take your colonial you know, superiority and deny. Uh, if you've ever been in the wild, and uh, I, I, my epiphany was in Churchill, uh, was in uh, uh, Hudson Bay, uh, in an old Zodiac rubber boat with a native guide who took me out amongst the beluga whales. And the, the whales would come up in the wild and just put their heads on the, on the, on the pontoon and swim along with us for a while, me and my wife in the boat. And I would look in the eye of this animal and I, I suddenly realized, I understand now, this animal has a soul just like I do. He's looking in my eye, I'm looking in, in, in his eye. I'm not going to deny his right, her right to life. And so that's what's happening here. This, the, the, this is the fundamental right of life. And that is the, because we are working to essentially organize our, ourselves around the most essential nat, nat, natural system. And it's pervasive 
from, again, from the mountaintop to the abyssal plain, across all borders, all cultures, all classes. Uh, it affects us all the same way. And we, we, if, if we understand that and can work toward that in our way, using our institutions, don't, it doesn't mean that we have to become communists. Or, you know, we can use our systems and, 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 and do that, but we just have to understand what the goal should be. And if we understand that the goal now is survival, if people can really understand that, you know, one of the outcomes of the pandemic is with just how about 600,000 people dead uh, just here. Um, doesn't that tell us something? Doesn't that say to us, you know, how vulnerable we are? And how did we solve the problem? Well, we haven't fully solved it because one, we have to find the cause, but two, we invented a response. Now, that's great. That's what we did. We invented a response and we saved millions of lives by doing that. Uh, and, 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 you know, if, if, why, would we, why would we doubt science when science brought us uh, a solution to a problem that was killing our families day, day after day? Uh, can we come out of that? Shouldn't we come out of that with a new perspective? And a new perspective that... Well, I think there's two things here. I think there's two dimensions. One is the science itself, which we celebrate together. The other is how it's refracted by the commodification of intellectual property rights or distribution systems to squeeze the vulnerable. And that, uh, how do you say, is playing out all over the world right now. And it, it's unfortunate because it takes away from what you might call that bright light that you identified of science's ability to respond to challenge when people are uh, feeling like the taxpayer put up money, government paid for the R&D, and now these guys are out playing as you know oppressive pirates in the street. In between the R&D, the transformation, the speed at which it came out to save the public are miraculous. But it's it all gets muddied by the way i you were talking in, in this last few minutes about the native american or the indigenous people going back to whether it's shamanic rituals or uh, the questions like black elk speaks writing about the environment i was given a book by my sister who runs a veterinary hospital in eugene oregon it was called columbus and other cannibals by a man who had a Western name, Jack Forbes, but it was, he's Native American. And the book talked about how Native American people thought that there was this disease called Wetiko that infected the minds of Western people. And it's, I always use a phrase, sometimes abstraction enables cruelty, that because they couldn't see their organic connection to the environment, they did things that were not only cruel to the animals or to the natural resource, but to other people because they didn't acknowledge being embedded in that system. I thought that book was very, very challenging and very interesting to read. Well, uh, it, the circle in that is coming round. Uh, it's so interesting to watch uh, the conservation movement 
preservation movement in the United States and, and around the world uh, basically come back to those indigenous values uh, where, where meaning and, and, and health uh, is embedded in natural systems uh, and that we have to understand them and preserve them over time uh, in order to retain that wisdom. And that, 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 that's coming around and around again, subverting the colonial assertions uh, of, of, of dominance over nature, nature um, uh, uh, that you spoke of earlier. Um, the, the fact is that if we haven't figured out now how nature can essentially wipe us out in an instant by virtue of uh, communities washed away uh, by, by, by uh, coastal hurricanes, uh, communities, uh, extreme weather patterns, uh, uh, essentially threatening nature, uh, nation states. I mean, Puerto Rico is a perfect example, still completely unrecovered from uh, 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 without help uh, 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 from from hurricane. Uh, and the same thing is true in the in, in Asia. Um, uh, and and in, and slowly it seems that these values are reasserting themselves, hopefully in time, so that they essentially infect or infuse um, the, the 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 populist who then will vote the villains out, will vote the old way out, uh, get rid of the old man that's running our country, our, our, our not, not not literally, but to to essentially there's an old thinking. That's still that an old needs, vintage. Yeah. yeah, old vintage. Just get we have to just turn it over, put it away, put it in the attic, forget about it, um, and, and 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 invent our way forward. And my argument is, there's only one path to follow. I don't want to be didactic. I just think there's an impeccable logic that goes with it, that because every place you look for a solution. You find it in this freshwater ocean continuum. You cannot find it on the land anymore because the land has either been has been exhausted, and and you know we're going to have to live there. And these systems, whether we, uh, I mean, let's just take it. The, the most simple thing of all is freshwater. <laughs> you know, where is the world going to get adequate freshwater? You know, if you look at the Middle East and you look down at, at, at Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, what are those things? What's what's the what is what's going on? Is it just tribal warfare? If you look, this is the cradle of civilization organized around the flow of water from the mountains in Turkey you know, to the ocean. And, 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 and if a farmer can't is can't have access to water because of natural or political uh, reason or religious reasons, whatever it is, what do they do? They fight, they give up, or they become refugees. They try to go find a place where there is water. So refugees crossing the Mediterranean, I think, are are basically fleeing the consequences of inadequate water. Um, and uh, you can look at, at 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 the source of of Palestine and Israel. What what happened? It's the diversion of water. From the from at the very outset, the version of water from the Jordan River that essentially was the basis for conflict that still exists in terms of what's happening in the East Bank and the West Bank and all the rest of it in terms of control of wells. And and by the way, I listened last night 
to a wonderful, wonderful lecture by a man who's a professor at Union Theological Seminary named Onery Hendricks. Oh, excuse me, Obery, O-B-E-R-Y, Hendricks. And it was called The Kingdom of God and Political Economy. And it was all about Old Testament struggles over natural resources with God or his messengers continuously reminding us that we were responsible for the common good. And he was contrasting that with the kind of ethic that pervades our, which might call economic religion, discourse today. Every religion, Rob, has water as a purification piece. You know, if you're going to be redeemed, you're being redeemed by by an, a water accountant. So I I actually I actually uh, my latest book is called Aqua Terra, which says that basically one the first thing is that you know uh, this is Earth from space. It's not green, it's blue. It's the blue planet, it's the blue marble. People use it all the time. We're, we're, we're misnamed uh, first. Um, but secondly, it's the one, again, the one thing that, that informs all our rituals. Every, every organized or disorganized religion has a water element. Baptism, go down by the sea, purification, all of these things, which are which are there to be our functions of redemption and the affirmation of self, are water driven. So why would we destroy it? And it's there for us in terms of let's just take freshwater desalination. I mean, let's let's face it: we are going to have to desalinate water from the ocean in order to provide adequate water for public health. It's just inevitable. I wanted to, uh, I want to emphasize something uh, that is very, what I would say, magnificent about you and your website. You have a series on World Ocean Radio of five to six minute little snippets each week. And why I think they're magnificent is they're so informative in five minutes that people get a huge, what you might call benefit to effort ratio. And the most recent one is called Ocean Resilience and the Blue Economy, which I found fantastic to the way it stirred me because you talked about, let me just, uh, you can correct me, but GDP can be broken down. The Bureau of Economic Analysis apparently does some disaggregation of the sources of GDP and in the United States, something like 1.9% comes from things that are coastal activities and water-related activities. Then you talk about, well, okay, maybe today 1.9% of GDP, but if we, extinct, if we don't sustain our oceans, our coastlines, and so forth, that'll be gone. But more importantly, other nations, we talk about a Caribbean island, I think is the reference you use, are 99% dependent on the oceans. And we can do things that to destroy their ocean, not just our own coastal economy. Absolutely. I thought it was an amazing, amazing offering. Well, you, you, well thank you. It, the, 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 the connections are so viable and so obvious. So, for example, everyone hears about the Galapagos. It's this you know, biodiversity mecca. And the reason it's there 
is because the ocean currents essentially distrib distributed nutrients in such a way that they they aggregated there, and so it was an enormous font and 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 safe place for 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 biodiversity development. Well, guess what? The same systems distribute poison, pollution, and that is affecting the Galapagos today from discharge from factories, uh, et cetera, or from air quality or whatever it is in places long, far away, but which through ocean circulation essentially comes and affects a place that one one think was invulnerable, but it's not. That's the real thing here. We are all equally vulnerable, whether you're rich or poor, whether you've got a gate in front of your house, or whether you have a you you have a abandoned lot next door, and we need to understand that that vulnerability has a solution, but it has to be equitable, and it has to essentially assert, apply tools and assert an outcome that is real, that is workable, uh, and that will essentially, you know save us from our own our own devices and I, I you know i don't want to beat it over the head but there's only one there's only one place to go and i believe that policy governance and all the rest of it should be completely that there should not be a single act in congress that isn't somehow cognizant of its implication on the ocean i don't care what it is that that there because i guarantee you I can find a way that it connects. Somehow, somewhere, it connects. Well, I think some of that relates to what you might call the resistances. And what it seems to me that you're doing is you're identifying the challenge, you're educating broad range of people. It's almost like a wake-up call. And then you're educating them about what to do and then through the halls of power organization what we call representative government around the world we need to how would i say inspire change in the face of resistance and at some point have to point out where that harmful resistance comes from to shame it or to or to change its direction i actually think it's underway um, I don't know if it's fast enough. I do believe that in Europe, in in, in Asia, uh, we're beginning to understand it, beginning to see it, uh, beginning to see policies uh, and legislation begin to occur. Uh, we're starting to see certain kinds of regional uh, authorities uh, or regional uh, alliances about things like illegal fishing um, and uh, coastal protections, uh, marine protected areas. Um, these are all good, encouraging signs, um, but I believe that where the where the, the the action needs now to happen is at the edge, at the at at where where most people live. Most people live on Earth live on the coasts, or at the confluence of rivers, and they are the core of the political will that needs to be put into place. And I think they need to understand, or I want to help people have the information available to understand that these things are not 
in Asia alone. These things pertain directly to the place that I live. Whether I live in a Midwestern city or whether I live in a, a, an African village or whether I live in a South American town, I, uh, all of these things uh, are connected to this one key operating system. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about imagining a, and, and building and, and, and using a new operating system for Earth. That's what it is. And, uh, and, and we should be exhilarated by the, by the prospect because it's only going to make things better. Yes. Well, Peter, you uh, are, this is your first time with me on the podcast, but I usually, uh, as I listen, there's a kind of spirit that crosses through me where I hear music. I hear a song that relates to what you're saying. And there are two today, one of which has been kind of my anthem, but I think it applies to your work. By Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, the vocalist was Teddy Pendergrass. It's called Wake Up Everybody. And I'll just read you the first couple verses that pertain. Wake up, everybody. No more sleeping in bed. No more backward thinking. Time for thinking ahead. The world has changed so very much from what it used to be. There's so much hatred, war, and poverty. Wake up all the teachers. Time to teach a new way. Maybe then they'll listen to what you have to say. Because they're the ones who are coming up, and the world is in their hands. When you teach the children, teach them the very best you can. And I think you embody that. But the song that kept roaring in my mind is an old song that was sung by Dinah Washington, Nina Simone, called Trouble in Mind. And given your blue economy, I had to sing, I had to bring this lyric to the front. Trouble in mind, I'm blue, but I won't be blue always, because the sun's going to shine in my back door someday. Well, maybe it's not exactly the kind of blue and the kind of sun, but metaphorically, you're, you're overcoming those troubles in mind, so that sun will shine again with respect to the water. And I think your work is fantastic. And I thank you for being here with me today. It's been a great pleasure. It's always fun to talk to you, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Yep. Be well. Talk again soon and keep us posted. I'm going to keep pushing things out through our website, social media, whatever. Because I think, I think your audience should be 10 times the size that it is because of the quality of work you're doing. And it's only a matter of get it, finding allies to help for the recognition right, of the contribution you make. Let's make it so. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it. And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking. But I'll know my song well before I start singing